Welcome back to Shorts Weather. Uh, my name is Emily Campbell, your host. This is episode number four, which is exciting. We have a set of quadruplet episodes, and this, I think I'm going to say this every time, but this is one of my favorite episodes we've recorded so far. Today, our guest is John McHugh, who works in the corporate communications world for Quick Trip, the Midwest gas station chain um, and convenience store chain. When I made my list of, okay, someday I want to you know, have this person and this person on the podcast, um, I kind of split it into a couple groups, which I'll talk about in today's episode. John was somebody that was definitely in my, well, maybe someday when this podcast gets super successful, um, the list of people I was going to invite to be on the show. So when I shot off a LinkedIn message to him not too long ago, Little did I know that he would indeed accept, and we ended up having a great conversation, which you're going to get to listen to here in a moment. Um, we really dive into um, work culture, environments as far as employment, and a lot of really interesting, pertinent topics. Sure, if you're interested in HR or internal communication, but even if you're not, some things that you can think about in your own workplaces, schools community clubs, etc. Anytime where you're on a team, how to build that culture. So John is one of my absolute favorite speakers, and I think you'll understand why here in a moment. So thank you for tuning in today, and let's hop into the episode. John McHugh is the Director of Corporate Communications, Leadership Development, and Training at Quick Trip. He's been based with the Wisconsin-based convenience store chain for over 17 years with heavy experience in coaching, media and communication strategies, and sales. He holds a bachelor's degree in theology from the University of St. Thomas and a bachelor of sacred theology from the Gregorian University in Rome. So I have to tell you, when I went to kind of pull together my um, intro for this episode and kind of to introduce you, I did not realize that you had a theological background. Yeah, it's actually not uncommon for a lot of us in our company to have such a background. Um, part of that is our owner and CEO. Uh, his faith is real important to him, and he wants uh, the company led from a, a, a very distinctive perspective, uh, one that uh, really matters, one that has a basis oftentimes in, in our faith and how we live that out. So he actually proactively looks for people, uh, candidates, employees who have that kind of background. Matter of fact, in the, our public relations department, um, all three of us at one point in time were teachers in parochial schools and principals. So you taught as well. I did. Yeah, I taught religion at a small Catholic high school here in La Crosse, Aquinas High School. I taught there uh, for almost 10 years. And then towards the end, I was also acting principal. Interesting. I didn't know that. So yeah. when you, like if somebody's like, well, tell me the story of John. Did you know, okay, I'm going to go to school for a theological degree and then go to corporate communications? Or what? how how did that start? And how did you end up where you are today? Give me kind of the, the story. Yeah, I think like many of us, the degree that we received in college doesn't always have a direct correlation with what we're doing today. You know, our lives take all kinds of different turns. I, I always wanted to do uh, theological studies. And part of it is just a, a bigger question for me is, you know, at the end of the day, what really matters? Uh, a big picture perspective. So I think that's what's always driven me. 
Um, I was very fortunate to grow up in a small town in central Wisconsin, a town of 300 people, where everything really centered around the faith community, uh, the church environment. That was where the school was, the church was, and the whole community really uh, gathered around that. So, you know, you, you talk about things like Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone, that communities are healthy when they're together. And I was fortunate enough to grow up in that kind of community where the faith perspective was so important. And that's really what kept us together, kept us uh, healthy. Uh, and, and, I, and I think that really instilled in me a desire to, to further that in my education. So I have to ask a town of 300 people, how many churches did you have in that town? Uh, we had one Catholic church, one grocery store, a hardware store and 10 bars, <laughs> which is quintessential small town, Wisconsin. Well, I think that, you know, when you think of small towns and people who don't aren't from small towns, I don't know if this is just a Midwestern thing or if it's a, just a small town thing in general. So I live in a town of about 700 people in Northern Iowa. And we have, I have to do the math. We have, we have five churches okay. in our town of 700 people. And, you know, more on the, the fringes and in the other smaller towns nearby. And um, I think sometimes it's hard for people to understand, but like you said, in a small town, the church really is the heart of the community. Yeah, very much so. It certainly was for us and still is back in that community. Oh, absolutely. I think of, you know, I don't live in the same town I grew up in now, but you know, when I do go back, whether it's going to church or going to church banquet. I grew up Catholic as well. I'm Catholic and, you know, fish fries are a big time of, you know, big thing during Lent. Um, And it really is a community gathering. Um, It's more than just, just church and just faith. Um, It's a community gathering too. It's the social fabric. Yeah, very much so. So when did that transition from, okay, I'm going to get a theological degree um, and maybe going to take that route. Was it a an intentional transition into communications or was it just something that happened? I'm always curious, like you said, that, you know, we a lot of people have a degree in one thing, they have a job in another, that's not uncommon. I think it's great, but I'm always curious, okay, was that the intention or did it just kind of happen by the way of life? Okay. Good question. Um, back in 2004 at QuickTrip, they had just started something called Improving the People Process. Uh, the context was our owner and CEO, Don Zietlow, had heard a woman by the name of Ann Rhodes uh, speak. At that time, Ann was the director of HR for Southwest Airlines. And he heard her at a conference and he said, I want to create for the convenience store uh, what Southwest Airlines is for the airline industry, where QuickTrip would be the place the model of what a really a great convenience store should be and knowing that uh, you need somebody to kind of lead that effort. Well, he had heard uh, of some of my teaching because I taught not only high school, but did some adult education. So he contacted me through a mutual friend and said, would you like to go work for a quick trip? And, and I, obviously I was very familiar with our quick trip uh, gas stations and convenience stores in our market. And this was my exact quote. I don't want to go pump gas. And he said, no, no, I think I think it's more than that. As a favor to me, would you at least go meet with uh, the CEO? So I met with Don and he said, you know, we're, we're just going to start uh, elaborating on our training programs. Uh, we've done a lot of uh, hard skills, you know, how to make the cheeseburgers, how to balance the books, how to work in the registers. But we really haven't had any leadership development going on. We really would like to do this as part of this improving the people process. Would you be inclined to come work for us at Quick Trip? So I said, Don, I'll give you one year. And then after that, I had to decide whether or not I was going to go back to teaching in the parochial schools or uh, if I was going to stay at Quick Trip. 
Well, I ended up being here for three months and realizing I'm never going to leave because the higher up you went in the company, the nicer the people got. It was just a phenomenal culture. So I started initially as a trainer, uh, doing a lot of the training for our leadership development pieces. And at that time, we were a small company. We didn't even have a public relations department. So as we started to grow, it became a little bit more popular. We got listed on a lot of the top workplaces uh, lists in three states in which we operate. Then we had a lot more media requests, other companies contacting us. And so Don came to me and said, John, we don't have a public relations department. Would you be inclined to start that? So we started our PR department back in 2007, uh, and I've been there ever since. So to give some context about how many locations did Quick Trip have when you started in 2004 um, and about how many are there today, just to kind of give some comparison of growth in that time. Yeah, when we started the IPP process, Improving the People process 2004, when I started, we had about 325 stores. Today we have over 820. Wow. So you've really been there for not just the growth of the culture, but in, you know, I was pretty young in 2004, so I don't, I don't remember a lot of, you know, the convenience stores from that time, let alone, you know, what one was doing versus the other. But just from my own perception, you know, you really have been there for the boom of the business, as well as from, you know, the sounds of it, the growth of the culture too. Yeah, I've uh, been very fortunate. It's been a huge experience for all of us internally in terms of our own growth opportunities, because when you grow uh, that degree, there's more opportunities for everybody. A lot of our promotions happen internally, and I'm a good example. You know, I started as a trainer and then uh, went to oversee the whole training program, then developed the public relations department and then expanded that team over the years. So it's just a lot of great opportunities for all of us uh, internally at QuickTrip. Well, and I think your background specifically as a trainer, as a coach, as a teacher, and the you know theological degree that you have, I really wanted to pick your brain on this because I had a coworker, um, you know, she is at a different organization now, maybe not a carbon copy of your background, but very similar. She went to school, she got a theological-based degree, um, she had a couple other jobs here and there, and then her passion, her skill set, she really used that in training and leadership and development at a secular company. I mean, she was with an ad cooperative for, oh my gosh, I don't know, 10 years, I believe, more than that. And then now she's um, in the finance sector doing similar things for another organization. And the more you talk to people, the more common I think you you find that it is that people have um, you know, a faith background and they end up working in leadership and development for whether it's a faith-based organization or not. What do you think the connection is? Because I, I know that you're not the only one. Yeah. I, uh, I often use a quote from Jim Collins. And Jim Collins is a great business author. He's written some of the best business books I've ever read. Um, Built to Last, Good to Great. Uh, and he talks about what makes great cultures um, at work. And I'll keep in mind, I'll read you a quote. This guy is not a religion teacher. He's not a philosopher. He's not a poet. He talks about what makes businesses 16 times more profitable than the stock market average. But this is what he says. If you want a great culture and you want a, a workplace environment in which everyone's engaged, do this. Quote, for in the end, it's impossible to have a great life unless it's a meaningful life. And it's very difficult to have meaningful life without meaningful work. Perhaps then you might gain that rare tranquility that comes from knowing that you've had a hand in creating something of intrinsic excellence that makes a contribution. Indeed, you might even gain the deepest of all satisfactions, 
knowing that your short time here on this earth has been well spent and that it mattered. Now, as I said earlier, that was kind of my desire to go into theological studies is what really matters. And here you have a business author saying, if you want a really great company, make sure all your employees can plug into that big, what he calls the purpose. You know, what's it all about? So for us here internally at Quick Trip, uh, one of the lines I always say is, our job is way more important than selling gasoline and hot dogs. If you think your job is just about selling stuff to people, uh, two things will happen. A, you won't find satisfaction because I don't think at the end of the day, any of us get satisfaction from, from just selling stuff to people. We want to know that the product that we offered or the service that we offered made a difference in somebody's life, uh, that their lives were better, the quality was higher, the communities were healthier. And when all is said and done, that's really what drives successful businesses. So I think there's a beautiful interplay and overlap between that kind of faith perspective and what makes organizations and businesses successful. And I think specifically too, you know, oftentimes people with a background like yours or like my um, previous coworker, they do end up in that leadership development coaching arena because you can really love the place you work or you can really loathe it or you can be somewhere in between. But in a job like that, I have to imagine that regardless of how you feel about where you work, you love what you do because you're passionate about helping the people that you work with. And I think that would be a common thread in their personalities, um, in desires. I mean, we all want to have work that matters, right? You, you just read it yourself. I just had a conversation with one of my friends. Um, he works somewhere else, different sector, not super passionate about what he's doing. He said, I just want to have purpose. I just want to feel like what I'm doing matters. I think that's what everybody wants, whether they realize it or not. Exactly. Now, now, we're a little fortunate here at Quick Trip because our mission statement is to treat others as you'd like to be treated. It's a golden rule applied to business. Uh, and every one of our 34,000 coworkers know that mission statement. You know, it's not like some companies have a mission statements on the wall someplace and nobody can recite or it even knows it. Um, we begin every single meeting at every level by all of us reciting that mission statement together. Um, and the reason why we do that is to remind people of that purpose. Because, you know, when you get in your jobs from day to day, sometimes uh, things get in the way of reminding you what that purpose really is. So you have to remind yourself every single day, this is what it's all about. So, you know, we have a mission statement taken right out of the scriptures. And I think that's that's beneficial for all of us. Absolutely. Anytime, whether it is in a workplace environment, whether you're trying to rally, rally the troops, so to speak, on a volunteer project, I mean, even in your own family, if you can find, if you can drill down to the purpose and make that something meaningful. I have a friend who always says that doing bad things with good people is much more enjoyable than doing something enjoyable with a bad group. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. If you can kind of rally your team together around the purpose behind what you're doing, I think about like picking rocks or you know, the kind of the like farm kid equivalent of digging ditches. I know it's a little difficult when you've got, you know, middle schoolers, elementary school kids to drive in. Well, there's purpose behind this. There's a reason you're doing this. But even if dad said, because I grew up on a farm and dad said, hey, we have to do this because, you know, we can ruin our equipment if we run over rocks in the field. Or we've got to go out and walk beans because we can't get all of the weeds with chemicals. And if we don't get them all, you know, it's going to drive down our yield. Yeah. There becomes a little more of a, oh, okay, this matters. I still don't like it, but it matters. And so I think when you can do that in the workplace too, it does amazing things. Yeah, I agree.
so kind of the background for anybody listening of how, you know, I got connected with you. And so I'll, I'll tell the story a little bit. Um, when I, when I decided I want to start a podcast, I made a list of people I knew, um, that I'm like, I really would love to visit with them. Um, you know, I've said this before, I'll say it again. This is not a profit venture. If I make money from this someday, that's awesome. But I don't care if I do or don't. It's just an excuse for me to have conversations with people that I think are really interesting. So I write down, you know, some people from my very close network I work with frequently. They're kind of like the low hanging fruit. And then I've got people that I know, but they're, they're very local to my area that I'm like, well, you know, they probably don't do podcasts. So they'd think that's cool. And then I have this like third category of maybe someday it'd be really cool to talk to blank. And so, John, I put you on that section of the list. I'm like, gosh, someday it'd be really, really neat to visit with him um, after that I had spoken with you. Um, I think I went off about Quick Trips Bananas at CCA Convention, Cooperative Communicators Associations Institute in uh, Milwaukee last summer. And I have to admit, when I looked at the speaker list and I thought, oh, Compassion in the Workplace, Quick Trip. I thought, okay, here we go. We're going to get an hour of how wonderful Quick Trip is and maybe he'll bring some free samples and it's going to be like every other corporate communications, blah, blah, you know, honking in your ear for an hour about our company's great and you should come check us out. Needless to say, I was pleasantly surprised because not only did I sit through very engaged in that presentation, you came back and did a presentation with CCA later and I also sat in that and then I found a YouTube video of a presentation you'd done a while back. And I came back from that institute and I sent it to all my coworkers. I'm like, you've got to watch this guy. This is fantastic. Um, so you were on my maybe someday list of podcast okay. interviews. I'm like, I'm just going to shoot my shot. I'm just going to send the message and see if, you know, maybe someday um, could get you on shorts weather. And to my surprise, um, just like I was surprised at how, you know, connected and engaged I was in your presentation, um, you're sitting here today. So again, I appreciate your time, but... Like we've talked already, compassion in the workplace is really your your flag that you wave. It's something you're passionate about, something that Quick Trip is passionate about. And it's something that really resonates with people to hear about because especially right now in a time of a lot of shifts in employment, people are looking for work that matters. This is an employee's market. I work in HR and I talk to people who are looking for jobs and internships all the time and they are looking for places to work that matter because they have a choice. They don't have to just go work anywhere just because they have a lot more options, a lot more freedom, um, and a lot more say in where they go and what they do. So I know you've already mentioned kind of when Quick Trip decided to integrate more compassion and uh, more of that purpose into the workplace. But tell me a little bit more about what that process looked like, um, you know, what some of the overall big goals of that um, improvement process were, and maybe some of the steps that you as a team took. We were very fortunate uh, in that our CEO and owner personally models compassion and empathy. You know, so it starts from the top for us. If you've ever heard the term servant leadership, uh, he's a quintessential servant leader. I'll give you a couple examples. If you come to the corporate office here in La Crosse and we have a huge parking lot, you won't find a parking spot that has a sign on it that says reserved for CEO and president. He parks where everybody else parks. If you've ever come into one of our Quick Trip or Quick Star stores, uh, you walk into the bathroom and there's a sign that says, if this bathroom is not clean, uh, call me. And it's his phone number. He personally returns every single one of those bathroom complaint calls. 
Why? Because he said, you know, it's really um, my commitment to them. And, and if that commitment's not carried through, I'm the one that ultimately is responsible. So he just lives by that honesty, integrity piece as well. He's the kind of person that knows everybody's name. Uh, he knows your spouse's name. Uh, for example, uh, two weeks ago at our senior management meeting on Monday morning before we started, he looked back and he said, John, oh, by the way, uh, your wife has a birthday on Tuesday. Don't forget to take her someplace nice. Now, this is a CEO of a company of, of over 33,000 coworkers. The fact that he remembers those kinds of details, knows that your family is important. The tone from the top is already set. And, and so what we really wanted is that, that every single coworker in this company has a leader uh, directly, not just a CEO, but directly that is also that kind of mindset, cares about you, uh, is concerned about you, uh, knows what's going on in your personal life. Because we believe that if you practice that compassion internally, that gives them the ability then to work an eight-hour shift to be compassionate with with our guests, with our, our customers. But you know what? If we don't treat them with compassion, we can't expect them to be compassionate with the public. So it's modeled from the top here throughout the entire organization. It really makes a difference, we think, in the healthy nature of the communities in which we operate. Uh, it's a world of compassion. It's needed. So when you started that process back in the early 2000s, was it difficult to get buy-in from every member of your team? I know um, the company that I was with prior to the merger, um, kind of in that mid-2000s time period, also went through kind of a culture rebrand and refresh and did many um, things in the same vein of what Quick Trip did. And there were always a few stragglers that, um, you know, it was hard to really get them bought into this new idea and the importance of refreshing that culture was that something that Quick Trip ran into as well? Yeah, I, I, I think any organization, when it does a little bit of a cultural revolution, is going to receive a little bit of uh, kickback from that. Uh, we're very operational as a company. And so to say to all of our leaders here, we're going to spend an entire uh, six hours just talking about our mission and values. Some people are like, oh, this is fluffy HR stuff. I don't know if this is really going to have a benefit. Well, over time, certainly uh, we found out that it does have a huge benefit. Um, so I think that was a factor. The other piece to it, we also have some people who self-ejected in 2004, 2005, 2006. And you know what? This just doesn't fit me. That's not how I'm hardwired. Um, I, I don't think there's a place from here. And so we had some people self-eject, which is fine. Because anytime you do a cultural revolution, you have to make sure that everybody uh, believes uh, in, in really what we're selling. Now, here's how we know it works. Uh, that culture of compassion for us has really elevated our guest service. Um, internally, we don't refer to people as customers. We call them guests. And we think that's an important concept as well. Well, um, in 2004, that year, we received 21 unsolicited guest compliment letters to the corporate office where people wrote in, said, boy, I had a great experience, had a quick trip or quick star. Um, and so we said, you know, let's take those letters that we get uh, and let's publish them. Uh, we send a newsletter to the stores every Wednesday sales data and all kinds of different things. Let's publish those letters. And if we know who the coworker is, we'll send them a, a nice thank you note with a, a little gift card inside. Uh, with this concept that when you celebrate goodness and you celebrate compassion, goodness celebrated creates more goodness. So we started that in 2004 with 21 unsolicited guest complimenters. This last year we received, get this, 2,529 unsolicited guest compliment letters. I mean, the numbers have just snowballed. And sometimes when you go into one of our stores on a Wednesday and you see the coworkers reading their uh, newsletter, sometimes there's not a dry eye in the store. 
because the stories are just so profoundly touching and beautiful of what our coworkers have done. Well, you know what? For our guests, then, if they have a choice between different places where they're going to shop and they know that this place is going to be compassionate and care about you as an individual, that's where you're going to shop. So what initially everybody thought maybe was this soft, fluffy HR concept turned out to be one of the biggest drivers of our great customer service at Quick Trip. So in an organization, I think, first of all, cultural revolution. I love that term. I'm probably going to steal that and uh, kind of think about things that way in my own life, in my own workplace. But you're right. There always will be some attrition whenever there's change in an organization. And like you mentioned, um, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just kind of a byproduct of the change that is happening. But obviously not every single person who was not 100% on a cultural revolution change, and you'll see this in other organizations too, they don't all pick up and move in their careers. So for those who were maybe halfway there on the culture, on the change, what were some things that you as a team did to draw those individuals into that cultural revolution um, to really help them buy into that idea? Because no culture change, no cultural revolution in a business in any organization works unless your team is 100% all in. It doesn't work. So what were some things that you did to get those last stragglers bought in? Yeah, not only to get the last stragglers brought in, but just to get every on board. I, I think any cultural revolution really centers around the effectiveness by which you tell the story. Uh, stories are the means by which we're really motivated. Uh, you know, I, I can do an HR policy or I can do a retail expectation and send out a list. Okay, I want to make sure you do these 15 things every day. Well, that kind of information hits your cerebral cortex and the part of your brain that remembers things like physics and math and theory. The problem is that you won't remember that lesson for very long. But if I can tell you a story and a story that has an emotional content to it, that'll touch your limbic brain. And that's the part of your brain that remembers stories and stories with an emotional content. And you'll remember that story, that lesson. 15 times longer than anything in your cerebral cortex. So one of the things that we've done uh, throughout all these years is to tell the great customer service stories, the guest service stories. And sometimes they're very touching. Um, Again, if you go online and you look at one of my keynotes, it's really a bunch of stories that touch the heart. Uh, And here's the reason why. Somebody sent me this quote that I love. Story, as it turns out, is crucial to our evolution as human beings more so than the opposable thumb. Opposable thumbs let us hang on. Story told us what to hang on to. I love that. And and for us, that's really what we do here at Quick Trip is we tell the stories of of customers' lives that have been changed, impacted by something we did. Sometimes it's pretty simple. Something as simple as the return comment. We'll see you next time. Stop back again. So I I think how we got everybody on deck was by telling the stories. And when you do that, uh, people jump on. Well, and you're 100% correct that, well, correct on two things, A, that people remember stories, and B, that in your speaking, you do rely on stories a lot, um, because I could probably tell you at least half of the stories that you told me, and that's been, you know, over a year ago now. One of my favorites, and I think about this every time I go to the grocery store and I pick up a jug of milk and I check the date before I grab it, Um, Because you never know if things got shuffled around exactly right. You want to make sure you're not taking home bad milk. Um, I always remember the story you told about uh, milk in one of your convenience stores and uh, kind of the epitome of guest service and um, your take on the customer is always right, question mark. (laughs) 
Yeah, it was just a good example where, uh, you know, again, one of our guests brought milk back that was bad, but it wasn't our milk. Uh, it was clear on the label. Uh, and again, customer was wrong. Uh, and the store leader could have pointed that out. But it said, because of compassion, she said, ma'am, apologize, that's bad milk. Why don't you go back to the cooler and get two half gallons on us? And also gave her a $10 gift card for her troubles. And that night at home, she was bragging about that experience and to her husband. And her husband said, why did you take it back to Quick Trip? It wasn't their milk. We didn't get it from there. And she came back the next day to apologize. And our store leader said, yeah, I knew it wasn't our milk. I saw on the label. But the goal was not to win the argument. Uh, the goal is to win your loyalty and treat you with compassion, uh, which is exactly what our store leader did. It's so beautiful. Again, you know, it costs us all the $15, you know, two half gallons of milk, five bucks, $10 gift card. But if we can really uh, change someone's day, because this woman was was upset. Now she goes home in a better mood. That has a better impact for her family, uh, for her job. And if we can change that perspective for all of $15, to us, that's a no-brainer. Well, that's just it. I mean, on one hand, it's a a people-to-people, person-to-person, and just an issue of compassion, a being kind, being good to people. However, Quick Trip is also a business, and there's a fiscal benefit to compassion as well. Um, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I remember you had thrown up a slide um, and it was, you know, if we do one nice thing and they tell this many people and they come shop with us, the numbers were incredible. There is a fiscal benefit in addition to others, like we said, you know, just being nice to people. There's a fiscal benefit to compassion and kindness from a business. You're spot on. Like, for example, now this is it's it's an average. It doesn't break out this neatly every single instance. But that woman will tell that story on average to 12 people. Uh, half those people had been a satisfied guest at Quick Trip. After they hear the story, they become a loyal guest. Now, we know this, um, as do most businesses, is a loyal guest will spend twice as much with you as a satisfied guest does. The other six, the other half, had never shopped at a Quick Trip or a Quick Start. After they hear the story, they start shopping with us. Well, when you add those 12 people together in a year's time, that will generate for us in one year $43,200 in sales. Well, again, if you have a marketing background, would you spend 15 bucks for $43,000 in sales? I mean, that's a marketing no-brainer. So you're right. Uh, compassion really, uh, it plays itself out uh, even in corporate America. By using the fiscal side and the you know, profitable side of compassion as well. I think that is a really important piece to share. Um, if compassion in the workplace, if kindness in the workplace, if that's something you're really striving towards, you know, they talk about there's always two two types of people. There's, you know, your thinkers and your feelers. Now people can be a little bit of both. Um, some people are more data driven, more people, some people are more emotions driven. And I think you'll find trends in different industries. I'm HR. A lot of us are probably more emotions driven than bottom line driven. You need both. In order to onboard some of your more data driven people with some of the more emotional based ideas that may come out of an HR department or may come out of a communications department, being able to show the data benefits of those ideas as well is a very important tool. Um, And it's an important way to show, hey, we're not just doing this because we want everybody to feel good. Like I said earlier, that's a very important piece. A profitable business also makes money. So being able to find a marriage between the two is very important. Um, And I think that is something that successful businesses 
have found the joint between. Yeah. And not only that, but I, I would argue this, show me a, an example of a company where they're not compassionate uh, to their guests, to their customers. And let, let's see how long they've survived, uh, especially in this day and age with, with social media. I mean, you have a bad experience. I mean, that gets broadcast throughout the entire nation. You can't tell me that that doesn't impact your bottom line. You know, I mean, the number of customers or guests that are coming into your organization, it's going to drop. I mean, studies have shown that. So we're always surprised internally at QuickShift the number of companies that, that don't follow this model. Uh, it certainly has been wildly successful for us. Um, again, we, we think it's a no-brainer. At what point in the process of bringing on a new employee does that compassionism, so to speak, that natural tendency for compassion or for kindness, at what point in the hiring, training, onboarding process is that really a factor when you're hiring people? Yeah, huge factor. We think our success is not so much about how we train people. It's really about how we hire. Because if you're bad to the bone, there's not a darn thing I can do in a training program that's going to change that or fix that. So in our interview process, here's the first three questions we ask. doesn't matter if you're the person making the donut back in lacrosse, delivering the donut on the truck, or selling the donut. Here's the first three questions we ask. Number one, Tell me about the last random act of kindness you did for someone. Number two, how have you made a difference in someone's life the last six weeks? And number three, um, last month, how have you treated others as you'd like to be treated? Do you live by the golden rule? And if you can't answer their, those three questions, uh, we don't go any further in the interview process because you're probably not hardwired to be compassionate in the workplace environment. Or in general, you know, so if you've been raised well and those are values, we'll hire you at Quick Trip and Quick Star and you'll have a very successful career. But you have to have it instinctively. Um, we study a lot of things uh, in HR, but we spend a lot of time with our what we call our core competencies. And we believe those core competencies are things that are ingrained in you pretty clearly by the time you're 18, 19, 20. And then after that, if it's not how you're hardwired, there's not a lot that we can do to fix or change that. Now, we might be able to make you a little bit more empathic or compassionate, but that's always going to be a dirt road in your, in your brain if it's not part of who you are. What we want is somebody where it's already hardwired, where that compassion, that empathy is a superhighway in your brain, where those synapses are firing in such a way that that compassion just comes out instinctively. So in the interview process, that's where we start looking for it. A few episodes ago, I did an interview with Brad Beyer, who is a ag retail sales and skills trainer um, based here in Iowa. And we had a great conversation about StrengthsFinder. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with the StrengthsFinder, Clifton Strengths, you know, any of those strengths assessments, take your pick. Um, but he has told me, and I didn't realize this, I've taken StrengthsFinder, you get your top five back. Okay, that's great. Wow, these are the things I'm good at. He said that the order of your top five or your top 10 strengths they may change the order over time, depending on what's going on in your life. Maybe, you know, what stage of your career, what stage of your life you're in. But those top five to 10 strengths will always be your top five to 10. Might be a different order. But you really don't change your hardwired strengths over time. And I think that's very important to think about when you're in HR or when you're hiring manager one of my mentors early in my career, I guess I'm still early in my career, but earlier in my career than I am now, um, always said, don't just hire somebody just to fill a seat. 
because if you just hire someone to fill a seat, the seat's going to be empty again before you know it. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think back to my time in my last internship in college, which was the same company I ended up working for right out of school. And, you know, you talk about compassion in the workplace and memorable experiences, customer loyalty, all of those things. Um, I had my my personal pickup, you know, with me for the summer to drive around after work and, you know, go get groceries, that kind of thing. And they were doing some construction on the apartment complex I was living in for the summer. So there was lots of nails and debris and all kinds of things around. So naturally, you know, when there's nails in the ground and you've got a vehicle with tires, they kind of seem to find their way to each other. So I, you know, went out, went inside after day work and, you know, went to bed and I got up the next morning and I, I go out and I get in the pickup and my tire pressure is like 17 PSI. Oh my God, you've got to be kidding me. I'm already running late. It's 10 minute drive to get to the office. So I, I run to the office and I get in and I'm like, Hey, you know, sorry, I'm late boss. This is kind of what happened. He's like, no big deal. Um, you know, here's the number for, we had a tire shop, you know, within our business. He said, here's the number for them. Um, give them a call. They'll, they'll help you out. It's fine. Well, I had met some of the folks from the tire shop before during my internship. It was a communications internship. So telling stories, working with people, um, doing interviews, taking pictures, those kinds of things. So I, I take my truck over to the tire shop. And Brian is the, the guy in the office that schedules all the appointments and answers the phone. Um, he said, nope, no problem. We'll, we'll get you in. We'll get it taken care of and you can come pick it up after work today. So I walk back over to the office. I have my day at work and they come and they drop off the pickup. They bring my keys inside. Awesome. Patch the hole. No big deal. So I take it home that night. I'm like, wow, that was really, really fast. I probably should pay them. I didn't, there was no bill in the pickup. Like I should probably call and ask how much that was so that I can pay them. And they don't think that their intern is just delinquent on their bill and doesn't pay anything because they know that they're paying their intern. <laughs> so I, I stop back in the tire shop the next morning. And I walk in, I'm like, oh, hi, Brian, you know, how are you doing? And it's like, oh, I'm doing really good. Is your tire okay? I said, yeah, it is. Thanks. You know, fixed it fast. I appreciate it. And I said, well, how much do I owe you? And this is the business I work for. So they they know that they're paying me and I know that they charge for their service. I said, oh, don't worry about it. I said, well, no, you took time out of your day to, you know, patch my tire and it's it's a personal vehicle. So just give me the bill and I'll take care of it. No, you know, you're an intern, you're new to the area, you've got enough going on. And it, it took all of, you know, a half hour to take care of it. And you're just nice. And so don't worry about it. Just come back and see us sometime. Since then, I have had a couple things go wrong on my vehicle, same one, and needed a new set of tires. Are they the cheapest place in town? I don't know. Never really checked. But until that shop is no longer there, which I hope it is forever, that's where I'm going to do my business. And so I think there's a lot of truth to, you know, for some people it's milk and convenience stores for others. It's tires and tire shops. Exactly. Yeah. It works. It really does. And so much of that, like you said, is hardwired in the people that you hire. Um, and I don't think that you can train for that. I really, I really don't. And I would be surprised. It would take a lot to change my mind. I think from hiring candidates that, fit with your culture versus trying to fit a square peg in a round hole, so to speak. Has that been reflected in your attrition and retention over time? Yeah, our uh, our industry, unfortunately, the convenience store industry, um, historically is a very high turnover. 
full-time coworkers, and we study uh, uh, data from something called NAX, which is the National Association of Convenience Stores. Uh, NAX has uh, this year turnover rate of 129%, which is not uncommon in retail. I mean, well over 100%. Proud to say that our full-time turnover at Quick Trip is 24%. Uh, substantially less than the industry average. And even uh, some of those numbers that are a little bit higher for us, again, ideally you'd like 5%. Uh, some of that's college students, you know, who come to work for us for, as a part-time job. And then once they graduate from college, they go on to do something else. And we're perfectly fine with that. I mean, it was good experience for them, good experience for us. So in terms of our industry, we're phenomenal. Here in La Crosse, uh, which is where our home office is, we have a 120-acre campus. And so that's our bakery, dairy, commissary, ice plant, uh, all the offices, public relations, training, HR. Our turnover rate here on our campus is 1%. Is once you come to work for Quick Trip and La Crosse, you don't ever leave because it's the best place to work. So yeah, it, do, it does translate into um, really a, an excellent turnover, uh, retention. Uh, we have a lot of long-term coworkers, uh, so much so that uh, about 15 years ago, we instituted a sabbatical policy so when you hit 20 years at Quick Trip, we give you, in addition to your regular vacation, we give you a mandatory one month time away from work paid. So yeah, you just take off for a month, you turn in your computer, your badge, whatever kind of thing, you go do whatever you want to do for an entire month. And it's our way of thanking our coworkers for 20 years of service. Now, Emily, here's the interesting thing. We have coworkers who are on the verge of a, what we call the double sabbatical. Uh, they've been here 40 years because in our industry, it's not uncommon that your first job is you know, working at a convenience store, age 16, 17, 18. Well, what happens for a lot of our people is they think, well, it's going to be a part-time job and then I'm going to go someplace else. Well, they get in and they realize, I don't want to leave. Uh, first of all, because of the compassion piece, it's great culture. Uh, secondly, there's a lot of opportunities in, in careers. I mean, you can become an inventory auditor or a district leader or work in HR. You have all these options right within Quick Trip. So we have a lot of longevity in our company. Uh, and I think that also translates into a successful company because you're not churning people. Uh, you're dealing with the same person as a, a guest day after day. And that also generates loyalty. And that years of service, 20, 30, 45, that's not just in your corporate office. That's at your convenience store locations as well. As a matter of fact, we just had one of our store leaders uh, retired last Friday, and they actually had a news story on it, Channel 8. Uh, she'd been at QuickShip for 35 years. So, yeah. That's fantastic. You see that a lot in the ag cooperative business as well, which is the sector and the part of ag that I work in. Um, and we, we always did years of service, um, you know, kind of recognizing in five-year increments. And, you know, five years is pretty common. Ten years seems like that's kind of that sweet spot. Yeah. But you still give out awards for 30, 35 yeah. 40. Um, we celebrated a coworker um, right here in town with me who is celebrating his 45th anniversary with the company last year. And I don't know if that trend will continue with my generation, regardless of, of the workplaces that we choose. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But I think that speaks volumes to workplaces and employers that really prioritize their employees and prioritize their teams. Yeah, we think that that um, retention rate will continue with this generation. And it, we know that somebody in their 20s right now is going to have, on average, five different jobs, five different careers. Well, at Quick Trip, you could have five different careers all within the same company. No, no need to leave. Uh, and we have a lot of that where, uh, for example, there's a, a young person that joined our department last month uh, as a tour guide. Before that, she worked in our communication center. She's only been with the company two and a half years, but she's already had 
two really desperate careers. Uh, and she'll probably have three more by the time she, but she can all do it internally with here, here at Quick Trip. So the fact that we're vertically integrated and have so many opportunities for people, I think speaks well to our possibility of retaining people long-term. So I'm curious on your take on my generation, because I always love to get different opinions and I, I don't think there's one right answer. I have no idea what the answer is, but what do you think is going to be the key for employers to retain my generation? Maybe it's not for their entire career. Maybe it is, but even for that 10 to 15 year mark, because right now, if I look at people I went to college with on LinkedIn, you know, I graduated in May of 2020, right in the, in the midst of COVID and I've got you know, classmates and people I graduated with who've already had two or three different full-time careers. And it's not because they get fired, but because one person offers this and one person offers that, or they decide they don't love where they're at and they're going to change. And I understand that if you're somewhere and it's just not a fit, you got to get out. But if employer after employer after employer is not a fit, then it starts to raise some eyebrows. So what's the key to retaining my generation, what do you think that's going to look like? I think the keys to retaining any generation are the same. A sense of purpose at work uh, and being treated uh, with compassion internally. And those two pieces, I, I think it doesn't matter what your age is, you want those components. And I think it's really incumbent upon the company to make sure that they can uh, do that and articulate that. And so I said earlier, you have to go back every time you meet. What's our purpose? Why are we here? What's it all about? Because uh, at the end of the day, um, I, I don't care what generation you are. I think that's really what you want. Now, the other piece to it is I also thinking uh, we have to be realistic. So when we say to somebody, you know, uh, you're only two years out of college, you're not going to be the CEO. Uh, there's, there's a progression that has to happen. There's got to be some development that happens, experiences that you need. Uh, so, I, again, I think we have to be realistic with people. Um, I'm not so sure it happens with your generation, but um, just this week I did some interviews with middle school students and uh, they had some ideas for Quick Trip. And uh, a couple of the students were just really adamant that you should really be doing this. And, and I politely said, I, I appreciate your passion and your insights, but however, we have a, a very extensive R&D department, research and development. And so there's a process by which we have to go through to get this. And just because you have a great idea doesn't mean it's gonna be a great idea, there's a process. So I think for the development also of careers, people need to realize that, no, just because you graduated with a degree in such and such doesn't mean that you can be the next CEO of a company of $3.6 billion sales in two years. So there's also patience that's required in terms of understanding our own development. So I, I think that's a, a piece that we have to work on sometimes as well. That is a pitfall of my generation. I would completely agree. And I think that your comment that we all kind of want the same things is probably accurate too. If you think of the tech giants, you know, fill in the blank, take your pick of whichever one you want to think of. They are almost a case study of the bells and whistles of hiring. But I would love to see, and I probably will never get to see it, but I'd love to see some data on their retention by generation. We don't need, well, maybe there's some that do, but most of us don't really want foosball tables in the break room. We don't really care about having a gym at work, you know, maybe some do. I, I kind of want to work out not at work, but that's just my opinion. We don't really care about having the fanciest, coolest, sleek, modern desks as much as we do being paid fairly for what we're doing. 
being recognized for the work we're doing, having mentorship, being told thank you, being appreciated, being included. And I think that is the same across every generation. So in my perspective, of course, it's easy for me to say this. I think that people are trying too hard to retain or even attract younger talent. I think you need to go back to the drawing board and really look at those baseline, foundational, core workplace desires and make sure you're meeting those first before you're putting a ping pong table in the parking lot. But that's just my opinion. Yeah, Emily, agree. And not only that, but, you know, in retail, uh, we can't make all those accommodations like some companies can. Um, you know, obviously, we can't put a ping pong table in every uh, quick trip convenience store. I'd love to uh, see we, it. <laughs> yeah, we, you know, we can't say you can work uh, only till uh, noon on Friday, and then you have Friday afternoons off. I mean, we're a retail company. We're open 24-7. So some of those accommodations that you'll see some companies make for a great culture, we can't make. Uh, but having said that, we really concentrate uh, on the basics, as you mentioned. And it shows in the top workplaces surveys that we participate in the states in which we operate, uh, you know, just a couple of weeks ago in Madison, Wisconsin, we're listed as the fourth best company in the Madison area. On the Forbes list this year, uh, we're listed as like the, the uh, 78th best company to work for in the entire United States. Well, that's data that's coming not from us or from me in the PR department, but that's coming from our coworkers saying it's a great place to work. Not because we can offer, you know, uh, sushi lunches and five different options for meals and uh, Friday afternoons off and ping pong tables, but because of the purpose and compassion piece, that's critical. And to round all of that out, the big kind of picture, I always like to get big picture thoughts and perspectives too, every time I visit with somebody. And so in preparation for this interview, I went back and kind of looked through your LinkedIn again, um, rewatched a, um, a keynote or a, a speech that you have given, I believe it was at St. Norbert College. Um, that one's on YouTube and I'll throw that link down in the description of this episode. Um, but you had a quote that loyalty is built through compassionate relationships where even if you're wrong, we still treat you with respect and human dignity. And obviously a big piece of that is to talk about your stores, um, your teams and how you treat guests at the stores. But it extends way beyond that, even way beyond the workplace. It goes through to friendships, spouses, your kids. Um, I'm not huge on TikTok, but I do see TikToks on Instagram. And one of my favorite accounts, and I can't recall his name, but it's the Do Better Dad. Have you seen those TikToks? Yeah. For anyone who hasn't, it's a dad with some teenage kids. And he kind of does these like mock scenarios where... Um, let's say his daughter has a boyfriend and she wants to go to the boyfriend's house, you know, their family's going to have dinner on Saturday and he wants, the boyfriend wants the girlfriend to go over, um, you know, their middle school, junior high, maybe early high school. And it can always be touchy to know what to do in those situations. Um, but he always talks about, you know, okay, we'll ask who's going to be there, what time and, you know, being compassionate towards those kids and giving them the freedom and the trust um, you know, okay, you can go, but I need you to be home by nine o'clock or, you know, you can go, but make sure you text me when you get there or let me call his parents and make sure it's okay that you go over. Um, I don't have kids. I'm not the one to talk about parenting. So I kind of will stop there, but, um, even compassion from parents to children, um, or from one friend to another, it's important. It matters. Yeah. I, I think about it personally from this perspective, when we use the word respect, 
what does respect mean? Uh, actually comes from two Latin words, re, to do something again, and spectare, to look at. That respect means literally to take a second look. And so I think, you know, when we have arguments or disagreements or we're not seeing eye to eye, is to take a step back and say, well, hang on, let's take a second look at this. Is why, why does this individual think this way? Or why is this their belief? Or, or why are they responding in such a way? And when we take that time to take a second look, it's amazing, at least for me personally, where all of a sudden my eyes go, oh, that makes sense. And it breaks down the barriers. Uh, it breaks down hostility. And it really brings us back to that human-to-human -human connection, which I think in today's world is, is needed now more than ever. So we talk about generations. And I think as we go younger in generations, so, you know, grandparents versus parents versus my generation versus the next, there's an increasing unwillingness to have discussion or discourse. Um, I feel like my generation is the generation of passive aggressiveness. And I think people mistake that for being kind or um, that that's the right way to handle every disagreement. But in my experience, the healthiest and the most beneficial relationships you can have with other people, whether it's a friendship, a romantic relationship, coworkers, are those where you can have healthy dialogue, healthy discussion. You might agree, you might not. You might change your mind through the discussion or you might not. But you can say, here's my opinion on this topic on one side. Here's their opinion on another. We might not agree. We can still be friends. We can still be in a relationship. We can still work together. But I think the willingness to have that discussion civilly is important and it's becoming harder and harder to find. Yeah, the concept of civility and discussion is something that I, I hope we uh, get a little bit better at uh, these days uh, in our world and in our country. In your opinion, is there one key to getting there or what's it going to take? I mean, that's the million dollar question, right? What's it going to take to get there? Uh, I'm going to betray my perspective on this one. Uh, I think it's easier to live that way and do that way if uh, you're a person of prayer. Uh, I start every morning in prayer and reflection, uh, every single morning. Uh, and in, in that prayer time, uh, I ask myself two questions. What do I need to do today? And what do I need to do today that matters for all of eternity? And when you focus your day, the beginning of your day on that, you realize when you come to work, okay, you know what I'm really called to do? I'm called to focus on what really matters. Uh, and that's relationships. Uh, and that's truth uh, and honesty and integrity. But I'll be honest with you, if, if I didn't start my day with that reflection period, um, I would not be the nicest person on this planet. I can tell you that. Matter of fact, my coworkers know me so well that if I've missed a morning of prayer reflection, they can tell. Uh, and sometimes they'll say, John, you didn't pray this morning, did you? I'm like, yeah, busted. Um, because I need that self-reflection. I'll give you a perfect example. So um, a couple of weeks ago, my uh, counterpart in public relations, I were going to go down Madison for the Top Workplaces Award. We were going to drive together. And that morning in my prayer time reflection, I'm thinking, okay, what do I have going on today? What's going to really matter? And all of a sudden the light bulb went on. Like, well, Dave's going to Madison with me. He has grandkids down in Madison. I, I, I should have been kind, compassionate, and said, Dave, you can go down separately. Then after the ceremony for Top Workplaces, you can spend time with your grandkids. So I got into work that morning. I pulled Dave aside immediately and said, Dave, I apologize that I didn't think about this sooner, but do you want to go down separately today, separate cars, so that when we're done, you can spend time with the grandkids and then come, come to work a little bit later tomorrow morning after spending time? He said, John, that would be awesome. I would love it. Now, you know what? 
I never would have done that or came to the insight if I didn't start today with prayer and reflection. What really matters? Because today what really matters is the grandkids and spending time with them. So I, my, my solution, Emily, is that if all of us spent a little bit more time in that kind of reflection space, uh, contemplation, said, what really matters? What do I need to do, do today? Uh, what does compassion look like? Today? I think that's what changes our world. I love that. I might implement that because it really starts your day off with the right mindset. It kind of, it, from the sounds of it, helps you make a list of what matters and what maybe a, a fringe item is. You know, what's your priority, what's not. I also think that people haven't had the opportunity to have healthy discussion. So they don't know what it feels like or what it's like. Maybe I am just you know, a talker and a discusser by nature and a listener. But I, if I have a conversation with somebody, I know I can keep civil, respectful, and it's not a life or death issue, you know, whether it's, you know, social issue or something to discuss. It's kind of fun to discuss with someone who maybe doesn't completely agree with you and have the discussion of, well, here's what I believe and here's why. Why, why do you believe what you believe? You know, what's, what's the meaning behind that? You learn a lot. Um, but it also helps you develop your own thoughts on a subject. It helps you solidify your opinion. Um, I think you learn a lot about yourself when you have discussions like that, whatever the topic may be. Um, and I'm not just talking about, you know, political or like big social issues too. Um, it could be your opinion on your favorite convenience store <laughs> to go to. I don't know, take an example of something that's not as, you know, maybe world influencing, but it matters to you. As you're explaining your perspective, if it's something that you really haven't spent a lot of time developing a perspective on, it's a lot harder to defend, if that makes sense. The other thing that I know you've spoken about before um, and that I have read about, not just in relation to you know, your work um, and what you've spoken with, but on other topics as well, is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's one of my favorite tools to use to think about almost any situation. So for anyone who isn't familiar, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and I probably will butcher the explanation because I am not, you know, well-trained in it, um, but you picture it like a pyramid, um, and the base of the pyramid is the things that you have to have to survive, bare minimum survive, food, water, shelter, you know, that's the very, very bottom. As you move up the pyramid, it becomes more tertiary needs relative to the needs below. So once you have food, water, shelter, then you have a desire for financial stability. But you can only really care about financial stability until you know you have food, water, and shelter. You know, the boxes are checked. You can't move up the pyramid of your needs until you have the base, you know, below it taken care of. So you get towards the top of the pyramid. And some of those are needs that we forget that we have. You know, it's emotional intelligence, emotional connections, um, big picture thinking outside of outside of our own worlds. So I think it's important to show people that we care and I don't think we realize how important that is. As you start to move up that pyramid, I think we forget that, you know, emotional connection and personal relationships are up there. And it's pretty powerful to show people that we care because we need it and we don't realize it. So you talk about the return comment at Quick Trip, and I think that falls perfectly into Maslow's hierarchy of needs. 
So I guess share a little bit about what that is in case somebody doesn't know um, and where where that came from. And one of the, the signature phrases that we use at Quick Trip and Quick Star uh, at the end of the transaction uh, with the guest is stop back again. I'll see you next time. See you tomorrow. It's called the return comment. Uh, we train for it. Uh, we evaluate for it in terms of sending secret shoppers around, making sure our coworkers use that a majority of the time. It really has nothing to do with increased profitability or sales. It has everything to do with creating that culture of compassion. Because uh, again, Maslow would say one of the needs that we have is this need to belong. That there's some places where we can go where we're always welcome. Um, again, uh, we have a lengthy story that I used to illustrate that with our people. But in a nutshell, we're trying to recreate what my grandmother always used to do for me. Uh, my grandparents had a farm in northern Wisconsin. We would go visit Grandma and Grandpa for the weekend on Sunday when we were with her. Grandma would always give you this big hug. And she'd always say, you know, Johnny, Grandma loves to see you. You know, you're always welcome at Grandma's. You know, if you ever need Grammy, you just pick up the phone. You call me. You know, I'm always here for you. Well, as kids, when things weren't going well at home, instinctively, where did we go? Well, to Grandma. Why? Because she mastered the return comment. She never let you leave without knowing that you're always welcome there. So that's what we're trying to do with that. And we've had tons of instances where people have called in or wrote in and said, I was just having a miserable day. You know, because here's the catch with 10 million guests a week at Quick Trip. We have no idea what's happened in their personal lives before they started shopping with us. And we had no idea what happened to them at work that day. And we want to hope that at least one point in time in a 24-hour period, they have another human being look them in the eyes and say, it's good to see you. Uh, I look forward to seeing you tomorrow. I'll stop back again. Uh, and it's amazing the, the stories that people write and said, you know, I was just feeling miserable about life. I didn't think anybody cared. And your coworkers said it with such compassion and meaning that made the difference for me. And so for us, that hierarchy of needs, that need to belong, uh, that's critical uh, for us. It creates healthy communities, um, healthy worlds. Uh, it's what our world really needs. One of the best illustrations I've ever heard of that need to belong, and I'm not just saying this because, you know, we're, we're speaking today, but I really do mean this, um, is the story that you tell in some of your keynotes of the conspiracy theory letter guy. Would you want to share that story? <laughs> it's one of my favorites, and yeah. it is a good, a good illustration. Yeah, uh, it was some time ago. It was a, a five-page letter, and you could tell by the handwriting it was an elderly guy. Uh, in the first paragraph, said, I love your store uh, in Anago, Wisconsin. I love the no-fee ATM, love the price of the bananas. The coworkers are always friendly. And then he went off for four and a half pages on religion, politics, conspiracy theories. And the last line of the letter was, and I have other things to say to you, call me with his phone number. Well, our CEO and owner reads every single letter first, and then he gives them to whoever needs to deal with the issue. So that morning, Don came to my office, and he said, John, could you do me a favor? Could you call this guy back? Well, after I read the letter, I thought, I better wait till I have an hour on my calendar free, because once this guy's on the phone, this is not going to be a short conversation. So later that morning, I called him, and I said, sir, my name is John McHugh. I'm the director of public relations for Quick Trip. I understand there's some more things that you'd like to say after the very nice letter that you sent. And he goes off, Emily, for 47 minutes, nonstop. I, mean, I don't say a word. Religion, politics, who really shot JFK, how there's a connection to Anago, Wisconsin. He believes it. Well, finally, the conversation's winding down. I said, sir, anything else? He says, oh, yeah, one more thing. I was in your store two days before Christmas. I bought a banana and a pint of milk. And when I paid for it at the register, the young lady said, stop back again. I like that. And I said, sir, I'm glad you like it. It's called the return comment. And he got upset with me. He said, you're not listening to what I'm saying. She meant it. And so I hope she meant it. I don't want any of our coworkers saying like they're robots. And he got him in tester with me and he said, sir, you're not listening to what I'm saying. 
that young lady said I was always welcome in that store. And I could tell just over the phone that he was getting emotional. So I stopped and I said, hey, sir, is there more to the story? He said, yeah. Um, he said, I just come from my family. It was two days before Christmas. And we get the kids and the grandkids together a couple of days before the actual holiday. It's just easier than the day of Christmas itself. And he said, sometimes when I'm with my family, I have this tendency to go off on religion and politics. I'm thinking, yeah, I'm not really surprised that you do that, you know. So he said, that night I went off on my tangents like I always do. And when I was leaving, my daughter came up to me and said, Dad, when you come here for Christmas and you go off on all your tangents, it's not fun to have you with us. So he said, I, I left my family on Christmas door and I wasn't always welcome. Walked in your store and all I bought was a banana and a pint of milk. And that young lady told me I was always welcome there. He said, it's good to know that there's some places where you go for Christmas where you're always welcome. Click, hung up the phone. Well, I, I found out through our camera system who the young coworker was. So I called her. I said, hey, did you know that this is what was going on in his life when you said stop back again? She said, John, I didn't have a clue. Uh, but I say it like I always do. I really mean it. You know, and he's just one of many examples where uh, that's what we need as human beings. Uh, we need somebody to look us in the eye and say, you know what, I look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Uh, stop back again. You're always welcome here. Uh, it's that need to belong. It's what we all need. And how powerful is it when someone treats you that way? I'm sure you can think of times in your life, whether it was a big act or a small act, but a time where you really felt like you mattered, you really felt seen, yeah. and that somebody really gave a crap about you. Yeah. It's powerful. Yeah. It is. Yeah, you bet. I'm a big believer that the world needs more compassion. If I were to give a TED Talk, I don't know what I would say, but that would probably be the topic because I believe it is the root of all, all good that we can create is compassion. In any area where we have systematic struggles, lack of compassion maybe isn't the only issue, but in my opinion is a big part of it. Big part of the issue, you bet. Yeah. Do you believe the world needs more compassion? Certainly do. Uh, and uh, people, I think, that really believe that and live that um, leave our world in a better place. Um, again, we're blessed. We have, um, you know, 33, 34,000 coworkers, and that's their goal every day is just to leave the world a little, a little bit better place. Uh, Quick Trip is highly successful. Why? Because of our coworkers living that. It's not because of the product. Uh, we have a great product, I'll say that. It's not just because we offer gasoline. A lot of places offer gasoline. Uh, it's because our coworkers really believe our mission statement is the goal today is to treat others as you'd like to be treated and to make a difference in someone's life. And when you have over 30,000 people living that mission statement, uh, our world is a better place. So now another million-dollar question. How do we become more compassionate in our daily lives? I think you've already mentioned, you know, whether it's prayer, meditation, some form of mindfulness of it. Are there other keys? Um, you know, I, I think those are that's the biggest bit. So it's always worked for me. Um, and, and I know the crew that works with me, I, they believe the same thing. So yeah, I, I think that's it for us. I don't, I don't think there's anything more than that. You do that, it'll happen. Yeah. I would argue or add as well, surrounding yourself with other compassionate people. Now you can argue kind of what came first, the chicken or the egg yeah. is... Do compassionate people attract other compassionate people or, you know, do you need to seek out compassionate people? You can argue, you know, which came first or which, which will lead to the other. But I think when you are around, whether it's coworkers, friends, you, you name it, 
who model compassion, you're more likely to be compassionate yourself. And I'm sure you can think of examples, I can too, of maybe a work day or a day where you're working with one team versus another or a set of coworkers versus another. Um, there's always, you know, maybe one or two in an organization or in a team that are, you know, maybe a little more grumbly, gruff, quiet, whatever it might be. And there's always some bubbly you know, Enneagram twos, if you're the Enneagram follower, but um, who are always making sure others are okay. When you surround yourself in that environment that naturally cares about others, you're more likely to care about others too. So how do we receive and recognize our own need for compassion then, which I think is just as important as being compassionate for others? How do we turn around on ourselves and allow ourselves to receive that compassion back? Because that can almost be just as challenging, if not more challenging, than giving the kindness or being kind. Yeah, you know, the interesting piece is when you study tap workplaces and uh, people say, what do I want in a leader? Um, I, I want a, a leader uh, that demonstrates compassion. Equally so, they also want a leader to whom they can show compassion. Um, coworkers want it as a two-way street. And not simply that, that they receive it, but when the boss is having a bad day, that they can give it to the boss as well and the boss receives that. Um, the top workplaces studies have shown that they want compassion as a two-way street. Uh, how do we do that? Um, one is I, I think it requires a certain degree of vulnerability. Uh, and I mean vulnerability in, in what's appropriate in a workplace. There's some things that I think are, are overshare or cases in which we don't respect boundaries, psychological boundaries. I'm talking about what's appropriate. But I think there are appropriate places in the workplace in which we can be vulnerable. Um, you know, if someone's really sad and say, geez, you don't seem yourself today, what's going on? And, and so that the boss can legitimately say, well, you know what? I, I had a golden retriever for 14 years. I, I had her put her down yesterday. That's an appropriate vulnerability. And, and it also lets us know that that boss has compassion internally. Uh, he's got a pet that he loves dearly, is now lost. Those are things that I think we, we can do in the work environment. Uh, and then coworkers, because you surrounded yourself with good people, they respond appropriately and say, but what can we do to help you today? And maybe they cut you a little bit of slack because you're not on top of your game. Those are things that I think are important, but it requires a certain amount of vulnerability. So often in leadership in corporate America, you, you know, you're the one that always has to have it all put together uh, and the one that has all the answers. That's not true leadership. Uh, true leadership means, no, I don't always have the answers. Um, I have to think about this. Uh, true leadership means sometimes, yeah, I'm not at my best in terms of empathy because right now maybe I need a little bit of that myself. It's acknowledging that, it's being vulnerable in appropriate ways uh, and admitting that, yeah, it's part of the human condition that all of us have regardless of our position. Have you read Brene Brown's work? Sure have, you bet. I just yeah. finished, I've yeah. read her other books. I just finished, I thought it was just me, but it isn't. Wonderful book, yeah. focuses entirely on that concept of vulnerability and using that as basically a currency for connection. I think your yeah. comment on oversharing or um, I believe there's the like TikTok term or the therapy term for that is trauma bonding. Um, yeah. I think their oversharing is something to definitely be mindful of, but finding that happy medium of vulnerability, um, making sure you have the right recipe for being vulnerable, you know, people you trust, people who care about yeah. you. Um, but the last piece of that is really to just feel comfortable sharing. And it's a lot harder for most of us than we want to admit. I'm in that boat. But how, A, how much better you feel about, in the short term, about those circumstances when you do share. 
but and if you've read Brene's books, I mean, you you know she visits about this too. But the depth of a relationship, the depth of connection with that person, is ultimately stronger because now you're beyond just a surface level, you know, hi, how are you doing type of friendship or you know kind of acquaintanceship. Well, John, I could probably ramble on about vulnerability and listen to you um, share your take on compassion in the workplace for hours and hours. Um, But I know that, you know, you have a busy schedule and I appreciate you taking some time out of your day to uh, hop on with me and visit. I like to end every episode since it is Midwestern themed with some Midwestern hot takes. So I never give these out ahead of time, although you'll be surprised at how passionate some people are about their answers they're not supposed to be um you know issue inducing but sometimes people get very passionate about what they do so let me pull them up so normally the first question i ask is um, i give people a couple of midwestern um, gas station chains to pick their favorite from i won't ask you that one today because i think i know what the answer is going to be so But a couple of others that I um, will be interested to hear your take on. Um, so, Scotcheroos or Puppy Chow, which is your favorite and why? Scotcheroos, because we have a district leader in Iowa who makes phenomenal Scotcheroos. And when we have year end meetings, she always brings us a big pan of those. Now, in Wisconsin, do you call them Scotcheroos or Special K bars? Scotcheroos. Okay, good. You're not. I can't remember who it is that calls them Special K bars, but. I Never heard that. would have to argue that one because they, they are wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, based on where you live, I am interested to hear your take on this one because most of my guests up to this point have been from Iowa, so the answer's been pretty pretty consistent. Um, okay. Midwest speech-isms, ope or oofta? Oofta. Hi, you're my first oofta. oofta. Yeah, we have a large Norwegian population in this area, and that's a Norwegian expression, oofta. So do you use OPE as well and just not as much? Or is that not really a thing in Wisconsin? I actually don't use either one of those because I think in public relations, it's probably not the most professional language to use. <laughs> You've been, uh, had all of that, you know, skimmed away in your, in your exactly, professional yeah. time. I will say too, you don't have much of a Wisconsin accent. Is that intentional or is it just not something that um, you've ever had? I, I used to, but um, as you mentioned, I did four years of graduate studies in Rome, Italy. So all my classes were in Italian. So once I became fluent in Italian, I think that changed a little bit of my pronunciation. As a matter of fact, my uh, friends tease me when we go to an Italian restaurant, we order dessert. I order tiramisu. And they're like, what is that? And they're like, tiramisu. I'm like, I don't even know how to pronounce it the English way. So I, I think that's what changed a little bit of my, my Wisconsin accent. Oh, tiramisu? Yeah. That's it. <laughs> I'm like, what are, what are you even talking about? I, I didn't even know we, I didn't know we pronounced that wrong. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, um, for the namesake of this podcast, what is the temperature that is minimum for shorts weather? So at what temperature, minute, bare minimum, are you wearing shorts outside? Um, if this was a video cast, I would pull up my pant leg. And when you see how white my legs are, you will find that I never wear shorts. Uh, again, I grew up in a rural community and it, it didn't matter how hot it was when you're uh, putting hay in the hay out. You certainly weren't wearing shorts and you weren't wearing short sleeve shirts because you get scratched beyond oblivion. That, that's the environment I grew up in the summers. So uh, I don't know if I've ever worn shorts in public the last 20 years. Really? See, when we would put hay up in the barn, 
we would also get scratched up. We'd still wear shorts though, because if you were the one working outside, putting it um, on the conveyor to get it up, you could also get a great tan too. So it was like multitasking. We didn't care. You know, tan was much more important than having unscraped legs. So, oh, oh. well, this has been fun. I hope you had fun too. You bet. Excellent conversation. Thank you. Anytime. You guys, if you ever have the opportunity to hear John speak in person, that is just a subset of the stories that he tells when he speaks. And I would highly recommend, like I said, it's not a go shop at Quick Trip pitch. It's really interesting content on compassion, both in and out of the workplace. And hopefully now you can see why I was so excited to have him on an episode of the pod. So thank you once again for tuning in to Shorts Weather. I'm going to leave this short and sweet because I don't really feel like blabbing. Um, don't forget that subscribing and leaving a five-star review to Shorts Weather is a very easy way to support me for free. And if you have topic ideas, guest ideas, um, my email is in the link of this or the description of this episode. I'm still learning all my lingo. Feel free to shoot me an email or shoot me a message. Um, if you know of someone in the Midwest who is doing something really incredible, doesn't really matter what, um, shoot me a message and let's get connected. I would love to have all kinds of different people on our show um, and as a part of Shorts Weather. So with that, I will let you go. Have a great day. Have a fantastic week. Thank you for sharing some of your time with me today. And most importantly, thank you for helping me explore folks who make the Midwest much more than mid. We'll talk soon. Take care, guys.